This is The Politics of Everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast, so while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. With the hype around Bitcoin in recent times, cryptocurrency is almost a household name term. It seems everyone from all walks of life are keen to capitalize on the potential riches that a non-regulated currency such as Bitcoin can produce in very short periods of time. It's not just mum and dad investors and financial market gurus who are diving in big time. For example, the shares in the mega company Kodak, which is 130 years old, more than tripled when the company announced its new cryptocurrency called Kodak Coin. But where do you start in the cryptocurrency world? How do you get the skin in the game? What are the rules? And is it all it's cracked up to be? My guest today is futurist Steve Sammartino, who talks to me about the politics of cryptocurrency. Welcome, Steve. Thanks for having me. Wow, this is going to be a popular podcast. I can already feel it. It's such a hot topic at the moment, but I'm going to step back a little bit from the politics of cryptocurrency and, and ask you personally, as a kid, were you fascinated with the business world or what did you actually dream of when you were growing up as a, as a young boy? I just dreamed of making mischief. Basically, I was mischievous all my life and all I did was kind of want to uh, do exciting things and no matter what it was, just something new with energy. And so that's kind of, I think, how I ended up in looking into things that are new and interesting because I, I got bored pretty easy. So I wasn't always interested in business, but I was always interested in making a ruckus. And I feel like being involved on the leading edge of business is a great way to make a ruckus and sneakily earn a living at the same time. So I feel like I've hacked that one. Excellent. Well, you call yourself a futurist and I must admit, it's a term that gets bandied around a fair bit. Mm. I'm going to challenge you a little bit and say, well, why do you call yourself this? And what does a futurist do on a day-to-day basis? It's a great question. I get asked it every now and again. I've got one rule on being a futurist is that other people need to call you that and you don't call yourself that until so many people have called you that you almost just have to accept it. Basically, I mean, we're all futurists in some capacity. We're navigating our way through an uncertain future. But uh, basically, you know, futurism as it is, is a combination of anthropology, so history and understanding history, technology and how technology is changing the way we get things done, and then the economics and finance and humanity of putting those things together. So it's those kind of four things overlapping, anthropology, technology, the money side of things and human behavior. And human behavior doesn't change very much at all. In fact, you know, I often say we're operating on a 200,000-year-old piece of software. The human DNA is a 200,000-year-old piece of software. That, oh, that's crazy that, when you yeah, think about no, that. That's right. It hasn't had an upgrade. And so our behavior patterns don't change a great deal, but the way that we get things done and the economics of possibility on technology changes a bit. So what I try and do is mash up those things and make sense for it for people so that they can navigate their way through through life and in business to do well. So that's typically the type of thing that it involves and different futurists have different perspectives on things as well. So what is your own experience with cryptocurrency, which is our hot topic today? Are, are you trading in it? Do you, no, do you love it? Do you hate it? I love it. I don't trade in it. I, I own a number of coins. I think the, the I, I tease one of my friends, Nick, who uh, 
we were experimenting with the currency on I don't know 2011 and he bought me a pizza with a with a bitcoin because I paid for the pizza and he paid me in bitcoin and I laugh at him and say that's my that's my $10,000 pizza or my $20,000 pizza whatever bitcoin happens to be worth on the particular day and so absolutely <laughs> and I send him an email every you know every now and again where the price goes up and just sort of rub it in his face for a bit of fun but uh, look I hold cryptocurrencies and bitcoins and ethereum I don't trade in it I'm more interested in the technology and its possibility rather than getting rich quick on it uh, I, I think it's a, a very interesting technology and it's it's here to stay it certainly won't go away but let's just understand that this is a bumpy ride that we're about to go on and the technology is in its infancy so there's going to be a lot of change around that as well. It kind of reminds me and it's obviously not quite the same when people you know bought the early, the first version of you know the iPad or something like that like it was okay but it wasn't great and it was a bit clunky and no one really knew how to use everything and I guess it'll these sorts of things being a technology in essence, which is what currency is, according to your definition, it kind of is going to go through certain cycles, I imagine. So I'd love to know just in the most basic level for anyone listening today, what exactly is cryptocurrency and how did it even get started? I mean, Bitcoin's a version of it, but it's it's bigger than that. So could you just give us a really simple definition of, of what cryptocurrency really yeah, is? So cryptocurrency is a currency that isn't owned or controlled by anyone. It's actually a piece of software that gets put out into the marketplace. So the software goes out and it works on nodes. And so all of the computers that are linked to this system of the software, they're part of the nodes. And the way that you get cryptocurrency out into the marketplace is that you mine it. And the way that you mine it is your computer has to solve a complex mathematical equation to take out some coins. Now, the coins are just numbers that sit uh, on a system, which is a little bit like what happens in the banks. Like we don't even touch a lot of our money now. But what happens is there's not one government or country that owns or controls it. And with Bitcoin, there's never going to be more than 21 million Bitcoins. And so they just release a certain amount uh, at a time. As they're mined up, you get you know, blocks of Bitcoin. And then we trade those currencies to and from each other in much the same way that you would put cash from one person's wallet into another person's wallet. And so we can just trade, you know, directly, you know, from our phone to someone else's phone and it's anonymous and no one controls it. And if you trade a Bitcoin, um, you know, the, the, the value of Bitcoin goes up and down depending on what people think it's worth. So that's where the speculation is coming. But it's basically in simple ways, a digital currency that lives on computer systems that we can use without any government interference. That's the basic dream of cryptocurrency. And, and you mentioned it's it's finite ability, like the fact that there's only going to be so many released. How do we really know that's the case? Has it already been made and it's kind of that's yeah, it? So or like is it well, sort of one of those things where there's going to be Mark two of this well, and we're going to all be doomed? Well, this is really interesting, right? And, and this is where it's similar to what you say, like a, an early version of technology. In some ways it's like the dot-com boom, right, where it's almost like a bit of a land grab where people want to get in on something because they think it might be worth more in the future and we really don't know. But the one thing for sure is that, you know, Bitcoin will never have more than 21 million Bitcoins because it's written in the software and the software is open source and we can have a look at that software and see what's written in the code. So we can see that and we know that, that it's true. But the problem, of course, is that Bitcoin and all crypto are usually based on open source software. Now, what that means for the non-nerds out there uh, is, is basically software, you can almost make a copy and paste version of it and make your version. So I, I can go out and make Steve coin 
or someone else can go out and make, um, you know, Cola coin or Kodak coin, as you mentioned. So what you have is that cryptocurrency isn't singular like gold. There's only one gold. Now, yeah, there's Ethereum and all these other, and Litecoin and Ripple and all these other coins that are out there. So anyone can go and make their version of uh, a cryptocurrency. So it's a bit of a race. And the ones that win are those that have the most trust and the most stability. But there's, there's some challenges with, with uh, the coins because they're highly speculative. They use uh, you know, a lot of energy uh, to generate. And there's some challenges that go with it. Because it's open source, the technology is turned into a bit of a bubble. I can I can feel that already because you just read online every day. Like there seems to be ongoing messages. We're inundated with social media stories of crypto success and it is fascinating because it's not yeah. regulated. It can be free, traded for free in real time. It's scarce as we've touched on. And even that mysterious story behind this, this figure, Nakamoto, Satoshi yes. <laughs> Nakamoto, with a fake name, obviously, which we found out later on was an Australian called Craig Wright, less interesting name, I have to say, who created this first Bitcoin in 2009, which is the most well-known cryptocurrency. It kind of feels like a little bit dangerous. So why would sort of big companies like Kodak, for example, feel safe moving into the space? Or is it just about dipping their toe in the water Look, and I seeing think, what And happens? by the way, with the Satoshi Nakamoto, no one knows for sure if it was that Craig Wright or a number of people. There's, yeah, Are there's you still, serious? Yeah, oh, well, there, there's some, a still team, a lot but- of speculation about it because the person who uh, – who launched or the persons that launched Bitcoin are worth several billion dollars now based on its current valuation. And in some ways it's illegal to create a currency. No, no, no state or nation state really allows that. So there is still shrouded in some mystery. The reason that companies are getting involved is, and I think it's the underlying technology around it that's really important. It's a little bit like the early dot com where we know that this is a revolution and something big is going to happen. And now that companies have seen their industries be disrupted, I mean, the classic ones and newspapers and media and music, you know, but finance here and anticipate could be circumvented and disrupted because what cryptocurrencies allow is a new form of peer-to-peer trading without a centralized authority. Now, cryptocurrencies are built on an idea called the blockchain, and that's where the real value is. The real value is more in the blockchain than the cryptocurrency. The cryptocurrency is one way of using the blockchain. And I'll give the listeners a good analogy. If we imagine cryptocurrency is like a website, but the blockchain technology that makes cryptocurrency possible, that's a little bit like the internet. And the reason that companies would dip their toes in is that they know that this is a revolution. And if you wait and see what happens, there's a good chance that you get circumvented by new technologies. And so that's why companies now are very keen to get involved. And and again, a lot of it's just putting a toe in. They're not all in. They tend to go in a little bit. Uh, That's why we're seeing it. And so how does the everyday person get into the cryptocurrency market if they're a complete Yeah, so cryptocurrency has what we call a user a user access problem or a usability problem. It's very tricky to get onto it. I mean, we can remember back to when we first got onto the internet. And if you got onto it early when the first web browsers came, you know, it was you get a CD sent in the mail and you're putting on software and you've got a phone line going across your house and the sounds, you know, to, to try and log into the internet it was all really complex. And now you get a device, you turn it on and you're straight on the web with Wi-Fi everywhere. And you're right, totally exactly. irritated you, if it doesn't you, you connect expect, the first time. You, know, you, know, you expect it to go to space and go to a satellite and serve you up exactly what you want right now. And if you don't, you're angry, right? So that's we forget that the early internet was complex like this. 
Now, the way to get on to a cryptocurrency, if you want to, is to go onto one of the exchanges. Now, the exchanges are kind of ironic because they actually almost go against the basic premise of cryptocurrency, which is not having a centralized authority. The exchanges are a centralized authority where you can trade cryptocurrencies. And typically, the way you would register is you would put in your name and some sort of ID and put down your credit card, and they would use that credit card to buy cryptocurrencies on your behalf. Um, so that's the easiest way to get online. And you would just go for a reputable exchange, just Google it and get an exchange and register. Um, so that, that would be the easiest way to do it. Uh, other ways you can do it is you can get the software where you trade direct with someone, you know, like blockchain software on your phone and so on. But the truth is it's not easy to get in for a novice. I was going to say, these yeah, are a are. lot there of are. barriers to entry. Like, it made people put back it seem easy. Like it just doesn't seem like it is just this one-step process. It's not like going me getting a trading no. account with Westpac, for example, yeah. or a different organisation and yeah. being able to do my shares it myself. A bit more it sounds a bit more complicated. But if you go to the major exchanges, you can find it pretty easy. So if you went to Coinbase, which is the world's biggest exchange, and just registered on Coinbase, it's pretty easy. Um, to get on there, you just put your credit card details down. They send you some um, money into your bank account and then you verify how much money they sent you, one or two cents, and then you send them a note and then you register and put a password in. And you can be sort of, you know, buying Bitcoin within half an hour if you want to. And because it's not regulated, yeah, I mean, there is a risk, right? So yeah, look, does anyone talk about well, that really or is that, that the appeal regulated. And the, I mean, this is a classic technology utopia idea where uh, technology utopians and um, libertarians see this as a way to fight against the tyranny of government and, and regulation. But the regulators are moving in incredibly fast now, especially given that, uh, you know, general investors and people that, a low down on the learning curve are very interested in this. And that always happens. Whenever there's a speculative bubble, people want to make fast money. And so now that so many people are starting to buy into cryptocurrency because, you know, the fear of missing out is so large, governments are coming down hard and fast. So every other day the the Australian ATO comes out and talks about it. We had in America the SEC saying um, that they're cracking down on cryptocurrencies, ICOs, which are initial coin offerings, which actually people can raise money on those and they're outside of the law of what we would do if we're raising money for a stock or a company launch or an IPO. And so they're all coming down now and a number of credit card companies have said, we're not going to let people buy cryptocurrency using our credit cards. So the regulators are coming down hard and fast. And I actually think that this increases the risk in the short term because I, I believe that cryptocurrencies will be outlawed in most Western countries. Like I really do believe that. And you know, if we use an analogy with drugs, we've got to remember heroin isn't illegal. It's illegal if you get it on the street and it's unpackaged. But if you get the heroin in a hospital or the methadone in a hospital or in, in uh, pharmaceutical drugs, it's legal. So it's really not whether or not the technology is legal. It's where, where you get the technology from. And I think in the long run, we'll probably see cryptocurrencies which are launched and controlled by governments because they want people to trade in a currency that they can control because it allows them to do you know, quantitative easing and you know, control interest rates and all of those things. Yeah. Absolutely. So it is coming. So it's vastly different from, say, buying shares, as I mentioned before, other asset classes that can be speculative and property could come into that as well. So are there any examples of what you can do with this cryptocurrency in terms of buying power? For example, I saw a story a little while ago. Um, it, I didn't read it all, but it was this guy who just tried to go around the world using Bitcoin and, and pay for everything with it. And he 
don't know if he succeeded or not, but that was his goal. So, I mean, can you, if you can't use it, is it kind of just like having gold bars that you keep in your cupboard and hope one day you can cash I mean, that's in a on? Great I mean, what's, what's the so value I of it? I would say that uh, cryptocurrency, including Bitcoin, was very much moving towards becoming a currency. And I think it's actually since it's become so speculative and the price has risen so much and fallen so much and recently it's actually moved from a currency to what I would call a store of value. In order for a currency to be successful, there are six elements. And one of those elements is what we call acceptance. And acceptance means that people generally in society would accept that as a form of payment. Now, there are many companies that accept cryptocurrency, you know, famous companies like WordPress, which control 23% of the internet and Microsoft and Wikipedia and a number of companies accept it. But recently, many of those companies are stopping accepting that because there's been so much, so many choke points in the transactions, they're slowing down because the network's become too busy and it can't cope. And also because the fees are getting higher now because there's so much demand for it. So more companies aren't accepting Bitcoin and quite a few of them announcing that they're dropping off um, accepting payments in Bitcoin. I think Stripe, a payment system also uh, said that it won't be accepting it in future because the cost of accepting is too high and the speed with which they get their money and transfer it back into their national currency is slowing down. So it's going through really big teething problems. I mean, they'll probably get sorted out with the technology and there's a number of technologies on the way to sort it. But in the short term, it's increasing the risk because it's becoming more a store of value, exactly like you said, like gold, um, more than it is a currency. One of the other challenges um, with this form of speculation is that if you buy uh, property or shares, you can judge whether or not you've paid a lot by how much rent you get or what your dividends are. In this, there's just basically a price. So it's really at the pointy end of speculation. It's almost like the old mining stocks and the the pink sheets, the Wolf of Wall Street kind of example that we're seeing here. So, you know, my viewpoint is that it's a great and interesting technology that will come back in 10 years and really change finance forever. But I think there's going to be some blood on the floor between now and then. It sounds like it sounds like it's kind of, you know, coming to that end end of uh, kind of it's not new and shiny. We need to actually think about this more seriously. And I did see a headline yesterday. that fascinated me because I knew that we'd be chatting today and it was something like, you know, is Bitcoin going to be like floppy disks, you know, where we just kind of all into it and now no one wouldn't even know what to do with it. So um, there's so many analogies of what what it may become, but we could all be wrong. There is one interesting thing about currency and and I think the listeners will find this interesting is that every time we've had a new technology arrive or a new era of technology in humanity, if we look at history, and this is this history element coming in, there's been a new currency arrive with the new technology era. So if we go way back to the very first economies, which were barter economies, we traded cowrie shells and shark teeth as a form of currency. Uh, when we entered the age of discovery, we used bills of exchange to as a form of currency. During the Iron Age, we had ferrous and metal coins for the first time. During the Agricultural Age, we had grain receipts and checks of payment arrive. And during the Industrial Dawn, which is where we're living now in the past 200 years, we had the very first fiat currencies arrive, which are government-backed bills and notes. And so in a digital age, it is inevitable that we will have a or a number of digital or cryptocurrencies but it's finding the digital and cryptocurrencies that will end up adopting en masse. That's where the interesting thing is. So the technology itself, I think, will survive. But what the eventual winning technology is, a little bit like picking the best stock in the dot-com boom, like Amazon's share price didn't recover from the dot-com boom loss in 1999 until 2008. 
So there was nearly 10 years before Amazon got back to the price that it was after the dot-com boom in 1999. And now Amazon is what I think the second biggest company in the world or third biggest company in the world. So will Bitcoin be the Amazon of the crypto age or will it be another one that we haven't heard of like a Google? I mean, we don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Darwinian <laughs> theory of cryptocurrency. Right. I love it. <laughs> Survival of the fittest. Um, I I was very fascinated. I, I know I shared this with you ahead of our chat today. German teenager, this guy called Eric Fintman, a 19-year-old who basically turned his 1,000 euro that he got from his grandma into 1.9 million in Bitcoin, is one of those media sensational stories which is going around. And he, he's kind of got this advice, which, you know, no <laughs> offense, but when you're 19, you don't really know everything, even though you think you do, uh, that becoming a Bitcoin millionaire in the next yeah. decade, if you don't do it, it's actually your own fault. So it sounds like it can't just be good news all the way. I mean, he's obviously young and, you know, he's done well, but... Is there that point where people should just maybe stop, pull out? I mean, how do we know? Or do you just kind of, if you've yeah, got a strong so appetite I'm for going this to say 19, something. who cares? <laughs> Here's what I'm going to say. Is it right? And I really result, do this. Really? And this has nothing to do with age. Let's just, let's just call it inexperience. And you can be inexperienced when you're 10 years old or 90 years old. That, that is the most foolish statement I've read in the last 12 months, maybe even the last 10 years. What we have here is someone who, yeah, yeah, it's foolish. And I'll tell you why it's foolish. That's a big call. Yeah, no, no, no. no. Yes, we are living through the year of Trump, so I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to justify this economically, <laughs> is that what he said is based on luck, right? And it may well be that each Bitcoin becomes worth a million dollars. That may well be. But if, if it is that you allocate your finances towards that and you're speculating against it, you're not investing. And speculators get rich. They sure do. And they're the people that get the stories written about them. But for every one speculator that makes it, there's a million that you don't read the story about. And we can follow the one anomaly and think that that's right. Should you speculate? Yeah, I think that any investment portfolio should have between 1% and 5% of its assets allocated towards high speculation where your returns might be 10,000 to 1. But the one thing that I know for sure is that the economy doesn't ever live on speculation and long money always um, lives where there's astute investments you know, based on return on investment, not just will the price go up. So the statement that he's made is, I, I think, shows a lack of experience in understanding investment vehicles, whether or not they're cash, currency, shares, building a business or property. And I think that um, a small allocation of your portfolio towards that might be prudent, but anything beyond that is pure speculation. And he clearly doesn't have any knowledge about how investing really works. He will learn. Yeah, It'll be one of those stories where in 10 years' time they'll go, and look, where is he now? Father, and he'll either be doing take really well or he's Warren Buffett, blown it all. the <laughs> person in the world who's been through a number of cycles and seen yes. all of this before you know, and seen it 10 times over. Um, it, it is true that it might be worth a lot of money and discoveries happen. And inordinate wealth happens with every technology enclave. You get Andrew Carnegie get rich because he discovers steel. You get, you know, the oil billionaires get rich and you get the tech billionaires and that happens. And that happens with every form of change in technology. But whether or not you should allocate your scarce resources towards that speculation for the one million and one bet, that's, that's very unstrategic. And he might be one of the few lucky ones, but just because you got lucky doesn't mean that, that that's good advice to take for someone else who wasn't in early. Very good advice for us all, I think. I have two questions I ask all my guests, and of course, I'm going to put these to you. And the first is, have you had any special mentors in your own career and life journey? If so, who are they and what have they taught you? Okay. The first one is my dad, who um, only went to grade eight, is an Italian immigrant farmer. And everything he taught me about business was about looking at nature. You know, he used to say really interesting things like, um, you've got to plant as many seeds as possible because some of them just don't germinate. 
You can't just plant the seeds and go away. You've got to come back and take out the weeds. You've got to make sure you water it. And he says, it's no good watering the plant for an hour on Saturday. You've got to water it for five minutes every day. So he used to give me all these great business analogies from the farm and, you know, teach me about, you know, understanding nature. And I think that business is a force of nature. So he really helped me with that. That's and another guy, yeah, yeah, really, really, you know, really great sage advice that, you know, he's crosses generation and crosses technology. So he was always about frequency beats depth, you know, a little bit often on anything that you want to learn or invest always is better than trying to make up a lot of lost ground, you know, in one big go. So he used to give me a lot of great nature analogies. Um, and, you know, he used to always say things like, cause we used to have chooks on our farm and he'd say, look, he said, what you got to do is eat the eggs and not the chook. He said, every now and again, if you've got a lot of chooks, you can have a, you can have a chicken at Christmas. And he says, you've got to let some eggs hatch as well. He says, so, because that gives you an investment in tomorrow where they'll lay more eggs. So, you know, that's like an investing and yield and dividend kind of viewpoint. Absolutely. Wow. That's great. Yeah. So my dad used to And it's so easy to remember, you know, there's no yeah, jargon in that, right. nothing complicated there, but it's all yeah, right and true advice. Yeah. And I met one guy in a corporate organization where we we're both really unhappy in our work, Tom Carr, his name is, and um, he be, he's younger than me. And he used to, uh, he put me on to various people that can help me learn about life and, and some of those business and life coach guys, some of those people from the 50s and the 60s who used to do not the Tony Robbins motivational stuff, but just life coaching stuff. He introduced me to people like Brian Tracy and Jim Rohn and some of these other great business coaches. And um, I remember I only knew him for a few weeks. And the day I left the company, um, we really connected. He gave me this CD that he burnt. Uh, this is going back in the day when we burnt CDs. With, yeah, yeah, back in the day. I was going to say, it wasn't a mixtape though, so it wasn't that long ago. Back in the day. No, nearly mixtape. It was nearly mixtape. And he gave me one of those and he said, oh, you know, when I connected with you, I thought you'd like some of this stuff. Um, you know, I've enjoyed you know, knowing you the few weeks and here's a, a CD that I made for you with some stuff that's, you know, helped me on with my life and I'd love if you want to catch up for coffee every now and again. Now, since that time, we started meeting once every two weeks for a breakfast to sort of share business ideas and now he's my best mate and we've been mates for 10 years. Great. Well, that's amazing. So last bit of advice for any listeners out there wanting to make it work for them in the politics of cryptocurrency, one or two tips to wrap up. My my number one tip is invest in knowledge, not in speculation. Play with the technology to understand it, not to make money from it. Because the person who understands makes money in the long run. The person who buys and gets lucky, they're the stories we talk about later. So it might just be a little 10-minute YouTube video once a day or reading something on cryptocurrency or blockchain. And if you'll just invest 10 minutes in yourself, you'll be ahead of 99% of the population. I love it. Well, if you do want to connect further with Steve, there will be some details on my show notes. You've been listening to The Politics of Everything. Until next time. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed The Politics of Everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network, your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespokecoms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U, and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.